I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. As was, I believe, already mentioned, Shane will be back uh, from Kenya, Lord willing, this week and back soon to our series in the book of James. Uh, But this morning, I want us to uh, look at a passage that has been uh, on my mind and heart in recent weeks. Some of you may know that in my Bible study class on Sunday mornings, we've uh, taken the past few weeks to explore and better understand the doctrines of eternal security, uh, the perseverance of the believer, and even the issue of apostasy, and, and how to sort of think about those who turn back from Jesus Christ and the gospel uh, that they once professed. And today's message in some way sort of connects to those topics. Uh, And not only that, but the message this morning also connects to last Sunday's sermon that Brian Irby preached from 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, concerning submissive uh, suffering. If you've not had an opportunity to to listen to that sermon, I encourage you to take some time this week uh, and to do that. Uh, But Brian walked us through those first six verses that talk about how and why Christian wives are to submit to uh, their husbands and respect their husbands, even when their husbands are sometimes obstinate or disobedient to the word, as the text says, maybe not even born-again believers. And in verse 6, as Brian, Brian pointed out, The kind of attitude and and the kind of disposition that women are called to have has been modeled for us by other godly wives in the past, and the example that Peter himself mentions is none other than Abraham's wife, Sarah. Sarah was a, a positive role model in this regard. Of course, as a younger woman, she had streaks of jealousy and at times was mean and manipulative. We know that she took things into her own hands uh, in the matter of having a child, uh, a clear manifestation of her not trusting the Lord, uh, and something that resulted in conflict for Abraham's family, not just then, but even today. And yet, even with all its struggles and failings, Sarah's story should encourage us. Because God was not finished with her, and God over time transformed her into a woman of faith, a a woman uh, commended in the Bible as holy, uh, submissive, and one who put her hope in God. The Lord changed her heart and, and, and even changed her name. And by the time she had Isaac, which was sort of almost 15 years uh, later, Hebrews 11 it sort of gives us a commentary on this and says that by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. So Sarah's hope was in God and his faithfulness to keep his word, his promises. She learned to fear the Lord, which drove out every other sinful fear. And Sarah's example, when following Abraham meant trusting God in danger, in uncertainty, and at times unpleasant situations. In fact, it's interesting that that the Lord chose Sarah as an example because 
she submitted in some, some interesting schemes developed by her husband out of his own fear. And yet God protected her. And so we have this model for us in the scriptures of submissive suffering, this, if you will, positive role model uh, in Sarah. But what I want to do this morning is to consider the example of a woman and a wife who was a contemporary of Sarah, uh, but not a positive role model. In fact, as we'll see, this particular woman was notorious for her unbelief and her worldliness. And the person I'm referring to is, is Lot's wife. Lot, of course, was Abraham's nephew. Uh, so we're going to be looking some at the episode of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot's rescue from judgment uh, to sort of better understand uh, his own life as well as understand Uh, what the Scriptures say about his wife. But I want to begin this morning in Luke 17, verse 32, one of the shortest verses in our Bible. Uh, We have Jesus wept, uh, and then we have this this verse. Uh, It's a statement by Jesus. simply says this, Remember Lot's wife. And this morning we are going to to do that as a congregation. We're going to remember her and through that try to learn some important uh, spiritual lessons from someone who is a decidedly negative role model in the Bible. Now, as we've already noted, there were many differences um, between Lot's wife and, or Lot's wife and Abraham's wife, Sarah, but there were also significant contrasts between Uh, between Lot and his wife. For instance, the Bible tells us that Lot was a righteous man and that God delivered him from the brink of utter destruction. On the other hand, Mrs. Lot was an ungodly woman and was destroyed by divine judgment in a moment when the way of salvation was, was open before her. The Bible also tells us the, the lesson of Lot's life, and it's spelled out for us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and this is the lesson. Peter writes that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. But that verse goes on to say that God also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And that is one of the key lessons that we learn from Lot's wife. James writes in James chapter 4, verse 8, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Lot's wife is a classic picture of someone who having fallen in love with the world, found herself unwilling to let go, even when it meant uh, for uh, and led to her instant and utter destruction, even when it meant suffering a similar judgment to the one suffered by all of God's enemies in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the lesson that Jesus drew from her life is a summary in a way of all the other lessons that we learn from her downfall and ruin. This is how Jesus said it. He says in verse 32 of Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. 
But then he adds this in verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, it's interesting to note that Lot's wife is mentioned explicitly only two times in Scripture. One is in Genesis 19, which we'll get to in a moment, but the other time is here in Luke 17. So before we go back to Genesis and that sort of larger narrative, uh, larger story, let's look briefly at this passage in Luke. Of course, the context here in Luke 17 is Jesus prophesying about his own return. He's talking about how things will be in the last days right before he comes again to establish his earthly reign and, and promised kingdom. And it's mainly about the day of the Lord. And that unprecedented time of judgment that will culminate in the return of Christ. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus makes this very familiar statement regarding the character of the days immediately preceding his coming. It's a a description, it seems, of the days in which we are currently living, but on a much smaller scale. But it will be even more so right before his second advent. He says there in verse 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That was the character of Noah's time, and it's the character of our time, as I said, in some ways, but clearly it will extensively and globally be the character of that time right before Christ appears, a time that is described as sudden, a time that is is unexpected, And, and that is the point. People alive when the flood came had no concern about what was about to happen, even though Noah had been preaching for years warning them about the coming judgment. So they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving their children in marriage, all of which are are really normal things, and and none of those things inherently wrong or sinful. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 make that undeniably plain. Uh, We all do them, right? They, They are everyday activities, they are things that fulfill fundamental needs and things that we do to ensure our survival. And if you think about it, even though these were wicked and sinful people in Noah's day, Jesus' focus isn't to point out their wickedness. He's actually stressing the ordinary nature of what they were doing in their lives. But that is what their lives were focused on. That is what their lives consisted of. That is to say, the problem was not that they were engaged in these activities. The problem was that they were foolishly and only thinking about the here and the now. As a result, they were caught completely off guard and totally unprepared when the flood came in all of its destructive force. And then notice what Jesus says in verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Again, all normal human activities. 
But, verse 29, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, notice what what he's saying. The people of Sodom, like the people in Noah's time, were caught totally off guard by divine judgment. It's not that they didn't hear that that it was coming, but they didn't believe that it was coming, right? That they didn't care that it might come. And when judgment fell, they had no warning. They had no time to flee. They were were caught standing flat-footed. So when the judgment of God struck that city, the residents of Sodom in mass were utterly destroyed without warning. But that's not true of Lot's family, because some angels, we know, according to the text in Genesis, visited Lot and told his entire household and warned them to flee the doom that was about to fall. And so they had ample warning. And the angels told Lot in Genesis 19, verse 12, then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot's whole family, even his sons-in-law, which actually may have been his daughter's fiancés, they all got this warning. They had more than enough time to escape. Though they delayed because Lot stopped and attempted to bargain with the angels because he didn't want to flee to the mountains as the angels had instructed, and so he begged them to allow him to go to another city, either, either out of convenience or perhaps because he had grown comfortable with city life and didn't want to go back to the life that he led when he was a nomad and traveled with Abraham. He, he didn't want uh, that kind of life anymore. So here in Luke 17, Jesus reminded his audience of the urgency of fleeing without delay from the wrath that is to come. It says in verse 31, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That is an imperative, uh, that is a command. In fact, it's the only, only one of two times I'm aware of where Jesus actually commands his disciples to remember. The other is he tells them to remember a, a, a former statement that he made about the fact that a servant is not greater than his master, and so they're to, to expect to suffer for their, their faith in following Christ. But this is a, a command from Christ himself, and, and then this lesson that he wants us to understand Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. A principle and a lesson that not only applies to a moment of impending judgment or a moment of crisis, but really all of of life, and it's this. If you would preserve your soul from eternal destruction, you have to let go of this world and cling to the Savior. Or or you could say it this way, to escape judgment, 
the, the judgment that will come upon this world, you must escape to the Savior. That really is the essence of the gospel. Now again, Luke chapter 17, verse 32 is, is the only verse other than Genesis 19:26, where Lot's wife is expressly mentioned, uh, which is fascinating because even in the Old Testament, she is mentioned only in passing, uh, where nothing about her life is recorded, only her destruction is recorded for us in the text. And yet here in the New Testament, Jesus points to her as an example that we should all pay attention to, to remember uh, as if as if we were all in danger of forgetting the subject, right? And so Jesus uh, stirs up our lazy memories, says J.C. Ryle, that, that 19th century Anglican bishop. He says, Jesus stirs up our lazy memories and bids us keep the case before our minds. And for that reason alone, we ought to take closer look at this woman and learn all that we can from her and her wayward and rebellious example. So that is our goal this morning. It's to to consider various lessons from the example of Mrs. Lot. Key lessons from her fall and destruction. And there's there are three of them that I'm going to to mention. Again, at this point we're we're going to leave the Gospel of Luke and go back so you can turn to, to Genesis. But let's go all the way Uh, Let's back all the way up to Genesis chapter 12. And the first thing that we want to mention is her wasted life. Her wasted life, and that's what we are to remember. We are to remember the lesson of a wasted life. Uh, Lot's wife is somewhat of a puzzle in Scripture. Her name is, as I've said, never mentioned. Uh, We don't know exactly when Lot married her or under what circumstances that he met her or married her. We don't know where she was from in exact detail. That, that being said, it is almost certain that she was from a, a pagan background. Uh, and it's even possible that she was a native of Sodom. Lot, Lot was evidently not married when he left the land of his ancestors with his uncle Abram, Genesis 12, you'll notice there in verse 4, says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. You'll notice there's no mention of Lot. Uh, being married in that passage. And then later, when Abram left Egypt, uh, it says that in chapter 13, verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Again, no mention of Lot's wife. Lot may have been more or less living as an adopted son to his aunt and uncle. At this point, it seems he was a part of their, their household and not the head of his own his own household, and so that's how the scriptures sort of uh, record it. And then Genesis 13, verse 5, says that now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And so Lot was beginning, evidently, to accumulate possessions of his own, but he was perhaps still single. 
And it's after this in Genesis 14 that Lot found and maybe married his wife. In fact, there's a Jewish tradition that says that Lot married her shortly after moving to Sodom, which could be the case because when Sodom was destroyed, she and Lot had daughters who were old enough themselves to be married, and Lot seemed to have fled, or excuse me, seemed to have lived in Sodom for about 20 years. So in Genesis 14, when Abram brought Lot back from the kings that had taken him captive, captive, Scripture says this in verse 16 of Genesis 14. And so he, speaking of Abram, brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So Mrs. Lot is, is, is perhaps a part of this what he mentions here, this group of women that he refers to in this verse. And if that's the case, then what's interesting, again, is that she isn't mentioned by name. And the significant thing about that is, as Charles Spurgeon says, that the Holy Spirit never puts a slight upon good women. And you see that to be true all throughout the book of Genesis with the mention of Sarah and the mention of Rebecca and the mention of Rachel. All of them major characters in the storyline, along with their husbands. So the fact that Lot's wife isn't ever mentioned by name gives us a clue as to the character of her life, that God himself did not regard her as worthy of mention except in the account of how she was judged. And in the end, her entire life is a void as far as the biblical record is concerned. All, all we really know about her is how she died. But we're told nothing specific about her life. And that kind of silence is significant. It suggests to us that, that whatever spiritual advantages that Lot's wife enjoyed, uh, having, being the wife of what the Scriptures call a righteous man, and also as an, as an in-law to, within this, this family, the family of Abraham, she seems to have squandered all of those spiritual privileges. And in the end, she suffered judgment at the hands of God with her own people rather than share in the merciful deliverance of God for her husband's sake. And Mrs. Lot's wasted life is a is a, um, a classic picture of the very reason that God forbids his elect ones to marry unbelieving spouses. You remember when Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac, he sent a servant back to the land of his own people so that Isaac would not have to marry into a pagan family. According to Genesis 24, verse 37, it says that Abraham commanded his servant, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. And then Isaac later did the very same thing for Jacob. And all of that was intended to keep the people of God as free as possible from these godless influences. Nevertheless, Lot's wife enjoyed many spiritual, spiritual privileges and advantages by virtue of her marriage. Whatever blessings of God that rested on Lot, she enjoyed those blessings. 
She had certainly heard Lot pray. She had certainly learned something about Yahweh in all of that time being married to Lot, being informed of how God had initially called Abram out of Haran, being a beneficiary of God's grace as the wife of a righteous man, which has to do with what I think Paul says and writes in 1 Corinthians 7.14 when, when he says this, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Of course, that doesn't mean that a person is automatically saved if they are married to a believer. And it's certainly not encouraging believers to marry unbelievers for the purpose of having that kind of influence. What it does mean is that, that when, you, when you do have a union between a, a believer and an unbeliever, perhaps because one of them was saved after the couple was married, that the unbeliever is set apart for temporal blessing because their believing spouse belongs to the Lord. And Lot's wife was a beneficiary in that way course, the greatest demonstration of God showing her grace was the fact that when the angels escorted Lot out of the doomed city, they brought her to, and yet she squandered all of that opportunity, scorning the mercy of God, wasting the day of opportunity, and ultimately she perished with the enemies of God rather than enjoy God's deliverance with her husband. Despite all of the spiritual advantages, her whole life was a complete waste. Again, J.C. Ryle comments, he says this, quote, privileges alone cannot save. Light and knowledge and faithful preaching and the company of holy people are all great blessings and advantages. Happy are those who have them, but after all, there is one thing without which privileges are useless. That one thing is the grace of the Holy Spirit. Lot's wife had many privileges, he says, but Lot's wife had no grace. So it's a sad story, to be sure, the story of a wasted life. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. And when we think of her today, we may envision that hardened pillar of salt, but Jesus says, let her be a reminder. Let her be a reminder to us of the dangers of a wasted life. The second thing that we're to remember, I think, is the lesson of a worldly affection. The lesson of a worldly affection. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis 13 and trace the lives of Abram and Lot, what you would find is that there were many differences between them, one of them being the fact that Lot settled in a city, whereas Abram remained a a sojourner or a vagabond all of his life. God had promised Abraham a land of his own, but Abraham never ceased to be a wanderer. He held on to God's promise by faith but he never saw the complete fulfillment of it with his own eyes. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 notes this fact. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith he lived, speaking of Abram, lived as an alien in the land of promise, 
as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham wasn't going to move into some some town that was worldly and exceedingly sinful. Uh, He was looking for the city whose builder is God. And if that meant waiting and looking beyond this life, Abraham was fixated on that. For God had called Abraham specifically to this kind of life, to live among the the Canaanites, but to live totally apart from them, to be separate, to not be blended in with their culture or their lifestyle or their worldview. Moreover, he was to be segregated from the more sophisticated Egyptians and especially to keep his distance from the values and the customs of the degenerate people like the Sodomites, to be separate from all of these various pagan cultures, but also to be separated from his own ancestors with no place to call his own living his entire life in a tent with, with no permanent fortification to protect him or his family, no conveniences of city life, none of, none of the resources that would have been available by living in a town or a city or a community, none of the fellowship with, with those in a settled community, dwelling alone and yet knowing God's presence and protection with nothing but a life of faith. And remember, Lot had started off as well as a tent dweller. But after he parted from his uncle, according to verse 12 of Genesis 13, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And finally, he moved into that city and got comfortable there, even gaining some level of importance there, although in the end... Lot had absolutely no influence for good in that entire community, not even in his own family. Uh, There were too many compromises in Lot's life for him to have an effective testimony. And the same is true today. So many in, in the church that claim that they want to reach the world by becoming like the world. Lot is, is proof that that just doesn't work. And even though he loved the conveniences of city life, Lot never felt at home in Sodom. Again, the Apostle Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, that Lot felt his righteous soul tormented day, and day after day by the lawless words and deeds of those around him. That is to say, though he appreciated the comforts of the city and the idea of being settled in a community, he was never at ease with the surrounding perversities. He never came to love the, the evil indulgences and the debauchery that came to characterize the city of Sodom. But Lot's wife was different. She not only lived in Sodom, she was attached to Sodom. It truly was her home in every sense of the word. She, she grew to love that place. Uh, no matter how evil it was, she did not want to leave. And unlike Lot, there is no mention 
nor any suggestion in Scripture that her soul was ever vexed by the wickedness there. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that was exactly the thing that led to Mrs. Lot's demise and downfall. She loved Sodom. And she was void of the love of God. And when faced with the decision to flee the world which was perishing and with the way of, of salvation or the way of deliverance before her, she could, she could not and would not tear herself away from what she really loved. In front of her was deliverance. In front of her was safety. In front of her was her own husband. In front of her were her own daughters. In front of her was a new life of freedom from the perversion and wickedness of Sodom. But with all of that in front of her, she couldn't resist the urge to look back. Behind her was danger. Behind her was nothing but certain doom. Behind her, the entire city of Sodom lay in ruins, and those ruins were still being pummeled from heaven with with fireballs of divine wrath. But even with all of that worthless corruption behind her, she could not walk away from it. Why? Because that corruption and that evil city represented all that Lot's wife truly loved the most. And this is the danger of such a worldly affection. First John 2 goes on to say this in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Sadly, Lot's wife was destroyed along with the lusts of the world. And instead of setting her affections on things above, she, she had fixed her heart on the things of this earth. John Owen once referred to worldliness as, quote, living affections to dying things. And that was Mrs. Lot's problem. She had been seduced by a fallen world. And this is one of the greatest challenges, I think, today in the church. Our greatest challenge today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. And I'm not talking about material things per se, or modern conveniences. I'm not talking about economic or social structures of society like family or government. And I'm not even speaking about the lost. I'm talking about the world system that is hostile to God, that is alienated from God and hates God and ignores God. That push for, for self-gratification and self-exaltation to the exclusion of God. That's what we have to guard against. Buying into that kind of thinking that, rev- that revolves around self and reflects no fear of God. And so Lot's wife perished right along with everything that she truly loved. 
which is, if you think of it, a, a, a fairly accurate portrayal of hell. It explains a lot about hell to us. If you think about it this way, you will spend eternity with whatever you truly love the most. On the one hand, if your heart loves the Lord and your heart is fixed on righteousness, and if you find your sweetest joys and delights in fellowship with Christ and His people, that will be your condition in eternity. But if your love is set on the things of this life, and if the things that thrill you the most are the things that Scripture says are passing away, then just like Lot's wife, you will perish in the destruction of everything that you truly desire and love. Or as Spurgeon put it, quote, if our hearts are glued to the world, we shall perish with the world. That's the lesson of a worldly affection. And that's why Jesus urges us to remember Lot's wife. And then thirdly, this, this lesson, remember, remember the lesson of a daring glance. Remember the lesson of a daring glance. Let's look again at these verses that describe Mrs. Lot's ultimate demise. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, the two angels warn Lot in verse 12 of the destruction that is coming and tell him to warn his relatives And then in verse 15, says this, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. And so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city, And when they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Lot bargained with them to to not go to the mountains, but instead to a small town called Zoar. And you see this in verse 23. Pick it up there. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now think for a moment just about the, the nature of this judgment. Brimstone and fire come raining down from the Lord. Uh, the ESV translation says sulfur and fire, and, and brimstone is, is the biblical word for sulfur, sometimes referring to that rock-like form of sulfur mixed with gypsum, or it can come in the form of a highly flammable sulfuric gas, both of which have this easily recognizable smell, one, one of rotten eggs. Uh, you, you may have smelt an odor like that on the way to Florida. Um, which is actually from the hydrogen sulfide gas found in many of Florida's uh, springs. And in Scripture, brimstone is repeatedly associated with the judgment of God. For example, in Deuteronomy 29, verses 22 and 23, the Lord warned Israel that if they despised His covenant, that He would in turn judge, judge the land. 
He says this in verse 32, Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Edmah and Zebuim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even in the book of Revelation, brimstone is often seen as an expression of God's wrath. And there we learn of the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, a place where unbelievers and even the devil himself will be consigned for for eternity. And so you have this utter destruction of Sodom, which left this area a, a barren wasteland that was uninhabitable, Uh, Very different, of course, from the lushness that originally attracted Lot to this region. Even today, it remains this area of brimstone and salt. In fact, from what we know of the region, it's possible that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was triggered by a natural catastrophe under the direction of God's providence. Geologists say that it's possible that a subterranean deposit of sulfur gas and other flammable gases ignited or exploded, and it literally rained rocks and fire over that whole area and left it desolate. Whatever the case, when you look at this location today at the southern basin of the Dead Sea, you see clear geological evidence of this catastrophe. With huge rocks scattered Uh, sort of randomly everywhere as if they fell from heaven and the stench of brimstone still heavy in the air. And according to Genesis, this fire and brimstone were already raining down when Lot and his family left Sodom. And then notice verse 26, but his wife from behind looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So you get this impression that Lot's wife was already sort of trailing, kind of, kind of lagging behind. Uh, so she sort of, if you will, slackened her pace. She, she fell behind Lot and her daughters, even though Lot was most likely doing all that he could to spur his family on and to pick up the pace, not to slow down, to stay together as a group and to not fall behind. And yet Mrs. Lot appears to be lagging in willful protest against the judgment of God on that city that she was so much in love with. And the motive of her heart becomes clear by her decision to look back despite the straightforward instruction not to do that. Which takes us in our minds to passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Which means... Lot was a just man living by faith, but his wife was one of those who shrinks back. And God says, 
He has no pleasure in a person like that. Lot's wife was guilty of unbelief, and, and particularly at that one critical moment when she had to walk by faith. Even though she had every reason to believe the word of the messengers that were sent to her and Lot by the Lord, even though she had entertained them in her home, even though that she had, she had witnessed them turn away a mob of sexual perverts that threatened her husband by striking them with blindness, even though she heard their warnings, even though she benefited from their mercy in literally taking her by the hand in verse 16 and leading her outside the city, she had ample evidence that God was doing all of these things. She had no good reason for doubting the veracity of the warning that she received. But even with all of that, and with the way of deliverance in front of her, she doubted, slowing her pace, and then turning her head. And in that instant, judgment caught up with her. Destroyed on the brink of safety. Verse 26 says that she became a pillar of salt. I suppose either completely encased in salt or salt through and through. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon has said about this episode. He says, She looked, but why did she look? I suppose it was this. Her heart was that way. She loved Sodom, and she abhorred the separated life. She had led her husband and her children away from the particular people of God, for she felt that she would rather mix with the reprobate multitude than with the chosen few. She was not of the spirit that could walk with God alone. She clung to society and to sin. Though she was running for her life, she thought of her household stuff and of the, of the ease of Sodom. And she looked back with a lingering eye because she wanted to be there. And it came to this, that as her eye went back, her whole body would have gone back if time had permitted. She already lingered and she would soon have returned. That one glance betrayed which way her soul was going. So listen, don't, don't underestimate the seriousness of a daring glance. A sinful, lustful glance is no small thing. Remember 1 John 2.16, the lust of the eyes is not from the Father, but is from the world. Don't minimize the impact of this sin. The sin of a daring glance or a wayward look. Don't forget about Eve who saw the forbidden tree and saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and she took from its fruit and ate. Don't forget about Achan in Joshua chapter 7 whose sin led to Israel's defeat in battle but later confessed what he had done, that he, quote, saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, uh, gold 50 shekels in weight and coveted them and took them and buried them inside of his tent. Don't forget about King David in 2 Samuel 11 who saw Bathsheba bathing and allowed lust to be conceived and sin to grow and death to result. 
And don't forget about this account of Lot's wife whose lustful look cost her her life. Because even now we are in a spiritual battle, living on the brink of Sodom. And if you and I do not guard our eyes and understand how the world around us is trying to defile our hearts and minds, we're just asking for a fall. Remember Lot's wife, who was sitting on the doorstep of deliverance, who had been graced with access to the truth, who was blessed with some knowledge of God, who was given angelic urgings to persevere in the way that God directed her, and who had, who had a husband that was also going before her, but who, with all of those privileges, chose to look back. What a tragedy to be so close to salvation but fall short of it. To go so far, but to draw back at that decisive moment. Or as Spurgeon said, quote, to be on the verge of mercy only to be slain by justice. Jesus meant it when he said, remember Lot's wife. These things from the Old Testament were written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope, says Paul in First, excuse me, Romans 15.4. We all need these lessons because we are all prone to, drift, to drifting. And the drift always takes place in the heart for some amount of time before it ever makes a public appearance. It could be happening in your life right now. You're still attending church, but you have no zeal for the Lord and a diminishing fear of God. You still sit under the word, but there's no conviction. You still sing, but there's no affection for Christ. You still learn truth, but there's no application to your life. If that's the case, remember Lot's wife. And one of the other things we learn from Lot's wife is that you can go a long way down the road of salvation without genuinely knowing what it means to be saved. You can live your whole life being surrounded by the things of God and the people of God or in the company of God's people and yet perish with the world. For that reason, Paul challenged the church in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Paul says, examine your own heart today. What are your affections set on? Are you living the life of a sojourner under God's care, or have you sought security in the shallow and superficial safety of the world? Have you put your hand relentlessly and steadily to the plow, or are you constantly looking back? A single momentary glance backward, that is what led to Mrs. Lot's undoing. A simple look over her shoulder, a daring glance in the wrong direction. She looked the wrong way, and not just the wrong way, but the forbidden way, and it killed her. And there she stands, a pillar of salt and a monument of the severity of God's judgment. So regardless of who you are and what brought you here this morning, listen to the words of Christ. If you don't know the Lord, mercy and the way of escape are before you. 
Would Jesus not save you if you trust him fully? Would you acknowledge your sinful condition and your need for forgiveness? Would you repent and trust in Christ this morning? That is our prayer for you, and it's our appeal to you that you would cry out to the Lord and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Change my heart. Make me new. And if you do claim to be a child of God, don't rush past this gracious warning. Don't sit back in your easy chair and think to yourself, that could never happen to me. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast the name of Christ. Hold fast the word. Hold fast to what is good. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Let me pray for us, and and if you'll just remain seated, we have a brief membership presentation to close out our service. Father, we bow before you, uh, humble before you, and Father, we thank you for your gracious word. We thank you this morning for your kindness, your your patience and long-suffering that you've shown each one of us. How often, Lord, we have forgotten your lessons and warnings and how we have been too attached, too often attached to this world and allowed our love for you to grow cold. Lord, would you revive our hearts this morning? Would you lead us and would you keep us by your power and keep us in and by the truth? And would you give all of us ears to hear this, this word and hearts to believe and to obey? In Christ's name we pray, amen.